When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where we see Jesus in the final two weeks of his life on earth in a really powerful way, a way that I hope encourages us in the poverty of our lives, in the resurrection of our lives, and in the worship of our lives. Six days before the Passover, Jesus comes to Bethany, the home of Lazarus. Remember that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus all live together. They're siblings, and they live together. The notable thing about Lazarus for, the, for John in this gospel is that this is the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. This is the man upon whom this greatest of all miracles has happened. It's the miracle that in Star Wars, the Sith can do, thus drawing many to themselves. It's a tale the Jedi would not tell you. Darth, I forget the name of the Darth character that the Jedi will not tell you about. But Lazarus has died once, and he's now alive. And you can wonder what his priorities were now that he had experienced death and life. wonder how he was different. There's a great song called Lazarus Dies Again, which I encourage you to Google it and listen to it. Lazarus Dies Again about how Lazarus sort of becomes a local celebrity after his resurrection and enjoys that fame in many ways. And then when Jesus dies... Lazarus suddenly becomes enemy number one or number two. They see him as a uh, friend of Jesus and therefore also part of his movement. And he despairs and he runs away and hides and loses his faith in Jesus, the one who raised him from the dead. But then as he dies again, he sees Jesus and Jesus is there to meet him the other resurrected one. It's a beautiful song. Check it out. But it's always helped me to reflect on Lazarus, what he, how he would have seen all of life. I think on one, the one hand, Lazarus would have seen life as being an incredible gift, another chance to start over, another chance to be alive. And on the other hand, he probably saw life just the way he saw it before. I do think these amazing events um, do change us in some ways, um, but they don't change us in the essence of our personhood, of who we are. So if you've been through something, you should know that you'll be the same and you'll be different. And those two things can exist all at once. But here they put out a big dinner for Jesus. Martha has served, um, Lazarus is at the table with them. And Mary, who in the original story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus was sitting at Jesus' feet, is doing what Mary does. Martha is serving, and Mary is choosing the better part, according to Jesus' words. And she has taken this costly perfume made of pure spikenard. Spikenard is a 
spice a fragrance from somewhere in the Himalaya region, northern India, Nepal, a plant, a rare plant that grows and highly prized and expensive too. She anoints Jesus' feet with this oil, wipes his feet with her hair. The house is filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's a beautiful moment. There is pure love here. We often speculate about the sex life of Jesus in modern culture. It's kind of hard to imagine Jesus not having a sex life because that is something in modern society and culture we assume everyone must have or they're maybe not really human. The sexual revolution in the 60s and lots of other developments over the years has led to our sex lives being one of the most important things about us and how we express that. Uh, This is both a good thing and a bad thing, of course. Like everything, it just creates new challenges and new things to, to deal with. We certainly are glad so much of the repression and exploitation and other cruel ways of treating people are over with especially when it comes to women and how they're treated by men. And yet, this uh, new sexual awakening that all of us have experienced on a grand mass scale in American society and probably around the world as well, has led everyone to think about Jesus and his sex life. And this is nothing new throughout history. Other people have done this, but it seems to have come to be especially important for people to have Jesus sleeping with Mary Magdalene or with someone else, or maybe be married to her, maybe have kids with her. And there is a line of succession that goes all the way down to the modern age of Jesus' pure-blooded descendants or something like that. And yet, when we read the Gospels, Jesus seems to not conform to the gender norms of most of his society. He certainly does what he has been called to do as a son for his mother. Even in that, there's a flexibility in the relationship. He is caring for his mother when he asks John to care for her from the cross. He is the eldest son of the family. Joseph seems to have disappeared somewhere along the way, and so he is responsible for his family. That's what he was doing before he started teaching and traveling, was working. He was taking care of business for his family, providing for them. This is a good thing for us to do and to take seriously. But when it comes to his sexuality, it's easy to speculate that either he was a miserable celibate or he was a guru, yoga swami, who was sleeping with all of his students. But the accounts of the Gospels are quite the opposite. In fact, if there were more sexual elements about his life, there may be more commentary on them. And yet it seems that when both men and women encounter him in very intimate ways, Mary here with this perfume, John there, reclining on his breast at the Last Supper. 
we see a Jesus that seems to transcend our petty human sexual, I don't want to say this in a negative way, sexual neediness perhaps that leads to desires that we cannot fulfill, that leads to anger, that leads to hatred, that leads to misogyny and bigotry and all sorts of despair. It is that path that we see plainly in pop culture today with the incel society and incel culture and voluntary celibates who are angry and bitter at women, young men who are angry and bitter at women and all that comes with that. And that is not good for us or good for Jesus. Jesus is certainly not that. He is something completely different. He is fully human, showing us that even our sexual problems or sexual frustrations or sexual uh, things that aren't quite right in our lives, perhaps, that we feel, our failures, our lack of love, our wanting things that we cannot have and people, too, treating them as things and objects, all of these that are part of our humanity, are not necessarily essential components of our humanity. That in fact, humans can be like Jesus, because Jesus was human. There's a real cult of evolutionary biology today that sort of asserts that males need to attack women, rape them, sexually exploit them, and that is sort of the natural way of things. By deception, we lie, we cheat, we pick them up. Pick up artists, culture, all that stuff seems to point in a direction that um, this is the natural way of things for men and women, that men should be like this or can be like this, and it's sort of okay. And certainly we are connected to those biological origins. And I'm not saying it's all bunk or anything like that. But often those proponents that teach that stuff often do it in a despair and resignation kind of way. Like we cannot transcend this biology. And Jesus shows us that we can. Jesus shows us that there is another way to relate to people in the world that's beyond our own personal sexual needs. And this is ultimately what love is. This is ultimately what it means for God to live among us. The gods of ancient Rome and Greece and other religions, and even in in Genesis 6 and in the Bible, came down and desired beautiful women and raped them. And thus, thus were born the demigods and Hercules and others. And so you can see, in, even in the stories of the origins of humanity and deities, there is this predatory aspect to it. And yet with Jesus, we don't see that at all. In fact, we see a different way of being. When she's doing this very intimate act with him, which anyone looking at it, in another account, the onlookers who are, the, who are um, Jesus... I don't know if they're enemies, but they're critics of him. They comment on the sexual dimension of this act, and Jesus rebukes them. What Mary is doing 
is an act of worship. It may look like something inappropriate from the outsider, but for her, it is not. It is incredibly appropriate for what she feels towards Jesus, this act of worship. The only other person that seem that I have read about that seems to embody what Jesus embodies in the Gospels is Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc at her trial, um, several soldiers who served with her and lived in her tent with her. And if you've ever camped or been outdoors or been on military campaigns with people, you, you see them naked a lot when you live with them. That's sort of how you have to live in close quarters and in the hot, the heat of the summer and the cold of winter and small spaces and tents. And the soldiers that served with Joan of Arc said things, strange things like, even though she was a beautiful young woman, we did not have the same sexual desire for her that we had for others, or she seemed to put out an aura of, of that made us not lust. They would say things like that about her. I don't know what was going on with her or them or in that situation, but to me, that seems to be how Jesus moved in the world. And nobody can believe it. Judas protests right away. Could this perfume not be sold for a year's salary and the money given to the poor? Whole year's salary. I don't know how much you make a year, but if you were to buy anything for that amount, um, that's a lot of money. But we know that Judas, according to the gospel narrator, says that Judas didn't care about the poor, but he was a thief. He kept the common purse and would steal what was put in it. So Judas is saying this very self-righteous thing, this sort of this um, statement that squelches Mary's devotion because ultimately worship is a royal waste of time. It is a waste of our time, a waste of our lives, a waste of lots of resources that could be used for other things. Of course it is. That is the point of it like getting a diamond ring for someone you love, like buying flowers for your mom. All these things are ways that we show love with perishable items or items that that cost us way more than what they're technically worth in a practical world. But that is what love is, and that's what love does. It wastes. It shows that others are special and loved, and that's what Mary is doing for Jesus. And Judas and his zeal, his, his zeal is not for the poor. His zeal is for what he can take from them. And so much of charity over the years has been simply this, a way for people to keep themselves in money and maybe pass a little bit along to the poor. Jesus answers with the most famous statement about poor people ever. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Some have taken this statement to say that Jesus is saying there's really not a lot you can do for the poor. Nothing. This would contradict his own life, who came to preach the good news to the poor and set the captives free and empty prisons and things like that, that he says he came to do. He is quoting the book of Deuteronomy that talks about how to deal with poverty in a larger society, how to 
build in safety nets and backup plans and distribution of resources so people don't die and starve. This is the gospel. This is the kingdom of God. This is the way God meant for people to live, not with scarcity and some being extremely wealthy and some being extremely poor, but with people sharing what they have. This is harder to do in a bigger society, a bigger culture, but it's always been hard to do. And Deuteronomy says that you will always have the poor with you because likely you will not follow these prescriptions. And that has been true down through human history. As the famous El Salvadorian bishop who was quoted by Oscar Romero, who was killed for his work with the poor, as he said, when I said that God loves the poor, they called me a Christian. When I asked why are they poor, they called me a communist. This has been the age-old problem throughout our Christian world. What do we do? Do we just take some money, sell stuff, take some money like Judas does and give it to the poor? Or do we look at why they are poor, which is what Jesus is indicating? You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus is saying that his life, death, and resurrection will be the thing that will change the way we see the poor people around us. That this act of worship is ultimately what all humanity will do. All of us will be Mary. All of us will be Martha, serving, sharing food. All of us will be Lazarus, who bears in his body the marks of resurrection. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus together are an act of worship. And this is the community that Jesus started. Leave her alone. We should have stopped there, shouldn't we? Perhaps we men should not comment so much on what the women in our world are doing, especially when it comes to how they are honoring and worshiping Jesus. The word Bethany, the place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live, is called the house of the poor. That's the word in Hebrew or Aramaic, the house of the poor, the poor house. There's another man that lives in Bethany, Simon the leper. So it is a place of poverty, a place where people who can't make a living the way other people do live. Maybe a place of sharing, maybe a place of caring for the poor. And that may be what Mary has been doing her whole life. And Judas, with his realistic comment, his comment about waste, is so hypocritical when he is not doing what he needs to do for the poor. Focus on your own work, we might say to Judas. And this idea that the church can't have nice things because there's poor people is against this teaching and this story from Jesus' life. People say, well, you shouldn't have a silver chalice to drink out of in church. The thing is, if, we, if the church does not own silver chalices, the rich people will, and rich people already do. It'd be better for us to share drinking out of the same chalice that's made of silver than for only one of us to have a silver chalice at home that he drinks out of by himself.
This is what it is to share the wealth, to share the abundance. We share it with everyone. This is the goal of all human community, should be for everyone to have what they need, for everyone to have enough, and really everyone to have enough to share. This is what makes life joyful and happy. If you think of the moments in your life that were the happiest, they were often moments when people were sharing. It makes us filled with joy. And Judas doesn't get it, but Jesus does, and Mary does, and Lazarus does, and Martha does. They, they get it. They understand what real, where real happiness comes from. It's when we worship, when we share, when we love, when we care. These are the places of real happiness in the world. And Jesus is going to his cross, and we are following him there. He will show us that the most costly act of love is not just spilled perfume, but it is spilled blood, his life being poured out for us. And that is a gift, and that is a sacrifice for the whole world that we will never forget. And we will follow him because of that, because of what happened to him will happen to us. That we will rise from the dead. Lazarus is the proof of that, and he's sitting at the table. And Jesus is proof of that, and he's sitting at this table, this communion table today. So come to this table. Experience the sharing of not only perfume and not only good food, but also his very life for you. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.